1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will defend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this great opportunity to be the church gathered and we are gathered around the person of Jesus Christ. We are gathered to receive the word. I pray now that you would fill every heart with your Holy Spirit so that we could see and understand and grow. We're trusting you for this. In the name of Christ, amen. So you've been making your way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and this great church was a great example. The gospel had landed powerfully there, and then it went out from them. If you've been here for all the sermons, you heard about that. And that kind of reminds me of the motto of the church I pastored in Canada for about 18 years before I started doing this other thing. We had a motto to which we aspired. I'm not saying we always got there, but we aspired to this, that we want to care more about what goes out than what comes in. I think it's an important idea for a church. We care more about what goes out than what comes in. And I think you reflect this with your heart and your concern for the pastors in Bolivia and the Ukraine. Certainly, the Thessalonians did. The gospel had gone out. Now, there were still troubles. There were difficulties, and so Paul sent Timothy there. But Timothy came back with an encouraging word. Things had been going along. They had been making progress. It was a steady, ongoing progress. You know the progress bar on your computer? You know, you're rebooting it, and then you get that little bar that kind of is going along. That's called the progress bar. I learned that a little while ago. I'm a very high-tech guy. So the progress bar is going along, and that's what the Thessalonians were like. They were making progress. They were growing. They were becoming more and more mature. And so Paul recounts all of this. He encourages them in all of that, and then in chapter four, he turns to their continued growth, their continued maturity. And it's interesting, a couple weeks ago, Rod preached about the sexual ethics. It's very interesting to think about how early the sexual ethics came with the gospel. Sexual ethics are not some kind of deluxe add-on for super-Christians. It turns out that the sexual ethics come with the gospel. No wonder our world is reacting so much to the gospel as it relates to what we believe about our sexual ethics. They're connected and somehow the world kind of knows that or maybe Satan knows that. So no wonder there's so much turmoil currently in in our culture around these areas. Well then, last week J.D. talked about work and how, how we are uh, simply to get along. And so we come to this passage here and the first thing we find is a hopeful grief. A hopeful grief in verse 13. You've been to funerals. It's popular now to call them celebrations. We're gonna celebrate the life. I think some of that might be a good thing. Some of that might be a, an attempt to kind of deny the reality that we're, we're dealing with here. And, and you can notice this a lot. Now, it's interesting that 
we will often say as Christians, well, I'm so glad to be a Christian, because if you've ever been to a non-Christian funeral, they lack hope. I've done a lot of funerals in this culture, and I actually don't think that non-Christian funerals lack hope. They might lack knowledge, they might not have our assurance in Christ, but there's a high confidence level that you will hear in the eulogies and tributes, particularly in uh, funerals where you might know that guy wasn't a Christian, but boy, there's a lot of confidence that he's in a better place now. Uh, he's doing fine, he's having a party with his buddies. Or maybe, uh, maybe he's in the rafters and he's looking down on us now. That's, a, that's actually Buddhist theology, that's not Christian theology. And so it's striking to me always when I'm at a Christian funeral and people talk about as if the, our friend is with us, he's not really dead. In fact, if you look, sometimes I, I go crazy. I never say anything, but I go crazy when the, the back of that little service folder, and it's got a little poem on there, don't grieve for me, I'm not really dead, I didn't really die. I'm the little glimmer on the lake as the wind blows. I'm the sound of the wind whistling through the trees. I'm not really gone, don't cry. That is not a Christian orientation to death. A Christian orientation to death is no, our friend is dead and he's gone and we're not getting him back and we're sad. That's a Christian orientation. But, Paul says, we don't grieve without hope. That's fantastic. That's really good stuff. Yes, grieve, go ahead and cry. I did a funeral once with a, another gentleman who was, um, he was an uncle of, in this family and he was a pastor and so we were doing this funeral together and he got after the young people who were crying over the death of their grandmother. He said, eh, no, 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 don't be crying, we're Christians here. That was outrageous. These kids lost their grandmother. They should be able to cry. Cry your eyes out, I tell people at a funeral. Cry your eyes out. But if your loved one, if grandma was a Christian, you have a deep and abiding hope underneath all those tears. And that's a good thing. That's a right thing. Now what was the question that Paul is answering here for the Thessalonians? To be honest, we're not totally sure what they were upset about here on this idea of grieving uh, over the loss of loved ones. Was it, were they, there were questions around the resurrection in these days. In other words, when is the general resurrection gonna happen? And there were questions around that and so maybe they were worried that people who died were gonna miss out on the resurrection. We have hints in the scripture that they believed the return of Christ would happen in their lifetime. And maybe they thought, well, the Lord's gonna return and our loved ones who have died are somehow gonna miss something. That might have been what's going on here. That might be what Paul is getting at. We're not sure, but we do know this. He was, there were two things that he didn't want. A, he didn't want them to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know what's going on. And two, he did not want them to be hopeless in their grieving. So we have this metaphor of sleep. In fact, three times he talks about those who are asleep. This is a metaphor for death. It's interesting that this was used by Jesus as well when Lazarus died. He said he's asleep. Or the little girl in Mark chapter five. Don't cry, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Now Jesus can say that because he's about to raise her from the dead. So, we should not deny death, and when we have a funeral, we should do it right, and we should grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. So all this really raises a question, what happens to me when I die? And I find this to be a really relevant question. I think a lot of people 
they, they think about this. And the theology that I was raised up with actually kind of complicates things a little bit, and I think it adds a certain kind of gloom or uh, uncertainty to all this that I think Paul is working against here. He doesn't want them to grieve without hope, but he also wants them to live a certain way. And so we have a hopeful grief in verse 13. In verses 14 and 15, we have a hopeful creed. A hopeful creed. Look what he says in verse 14. For since we believe, this is where we get our word for creed, something as credence or a uh, doctrinal creed, as this is what we believe. Here's what we believe. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So it starts there, doesn't it? Everything starts there. You are a gospel-oriented church. You will run me right out of here if you don't hear the gospel today. Well, guess what? I can't help it because it's right in our text. Jesus died and he rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is what we believe. By the way, I want you to notice the direction of travel in this passage. Just keep your eye on the direction of travel, particularly of Jesus. That is going to really challenge this thing that some of us were raised with. He says, we believe the path of Jesus, it turns out, is going to be our path as well. And what did he do? He died and he rose again. So we believe. And then verse 15, we declare. Do you see that? For this, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase. What is Paul talking about there, this word from the Lord? A lot of speculation if you look at the commentaries and the scholars. Here's what I think it means. I think it means that Jesus is reflecting back on the teaching of scripture, of, of Jesus. So in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, these are known as the mini apocalypses where Jesus stopped and talked about the end of days, the culmination of, of human history and the entrance in the, of the new creation. And what Jesus talked about there and what Paul is talking about here in chapter four and continue on into chapter five matches perfectly. Paul's not introducing really anything new here. He's just reflecting the exact scenario that Jesus laid out. Now Jesus there is using apocalyptic language. So it's difficult and mysterious and harder to follow and all that. And we're not getting into that today. But I think that what Paul is saying is, I'm taking Jesus' teaching and I'm applying it here. This is what we believe and this is what we declare, a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Interesting. So if you're walking around when the end comes, those who have died somehow are gonna precede you. That's all I'm saying right now. Let's see how this all plays out. In fact, by the way, getting at this idea of the creed, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 real quickly. Just wanna remind you of what's there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse three, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now I've got a, a question for you to reflect on. What are the scriptures Paul's referring to here? What scriptures could they be? What scriptures must they be? 
Sorry? The scriptures in the time of Christ, in the time of Paul, hadn't been all organized yet. This is the Old Testament. That's a kind of a shocking thing. The Old Testament predicted the death of Jesus. The Old Testament predicted the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is saying, here is the creed. This is what we believe. And this, by the way, from Paul, is also scripture now for us, an early report on the resurrection. Christ died in accordance with the scripture. He was raised in accordance with the scripture. And look at verse 22. If you go all the way over there, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is an encouraging word for you today. You're wondering about your eternal destiny. You're wondering about your future. There it is. Yes, you have died in Adam, the first man, but you are going to be resurrected in Christ, the second Adam. That's our destiny. That's where we're going. This is what we believe. If Christ was resurrected, then all those who have died, they'll be resurrected as well. It seems to be two groups of consideration here for Paul in thinking about the return of Christ. Those who have already died, and we all have people we know in our lives, our family, people who have died, and us who are still living. If Christ comes right now, those two groups are in consideration. Those who have died will come first, and then those who will left. So Paul seems to be telling the Thessalonians, don't worry about them. If you're worried about your loved ones who have died, don't worry about them missing out on the resurrection. Don't worry about them missing out on the return of Christ. They'll actually be first, and then you. This is why we want to treat grieving with the truth, not superficial, made-up ideas. And if you thought, I've been a little offensive so far, let me just try a little more. These heaven tourism books, pastorally, they're not helpful to tell people, don't worry, here's a story about a four-year-old who said he went and sat on Jesus' lap, so heaven must be real. Really? You're gonna take some stories that all contradict with each other and, contra and contradict with scripture, and you're gonna rely on that for your understanding and your confidence of the new creation? I don't think that's a good idea. And by the way, those stories that have involved young kids, those young kids now have grown up, and in some cases they are suing the publishers to stop publication, or they're suing their parents because they were um, appropriated by their parents to tell these stories, and the, these boys now are teenagers or young men saying, none of it happened, it's all a big fake, never wrote any of that stuff. And I thought this had all been pulled from the shelf, but unfortunately at Barnes & Noble the other night, Judy pointed out, here's a whole bunch of them. So this stuff is still being sold, but it's not helpful because it's not based on truth. It's based on some guy's experience or some guy catching a wave of what's popular now, and so let's write our book so we can make a lot of money too. What's gonna help you for your confidence living this life and considering your eternal destiny? It's gonna be this right here. This is gonna help you. Why don't we camp on the truth that we find in scriptures, and why don't we teach that? That's gonna help us going forward. This hopeful creed. This is what's important. Our hope for the future is deepened by a knowledge and understanding of the truth of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Holy Spirit so now we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and live this life.
That's what we're gonna have. That's the foundation for our belief in his return in triumph. And now Paul expands on that. Now as we read this next passage, I want you to consider this idea because I think this is what Paul has in mind. I don't know it for sure. But I think this is the imagery that Paul has in mind. In those ancient days, if a dignitary was gonna visit your city, you would send a delegation out to meet him. So the delegation would go out to meet him on the road and then would escort him back into the city gates. I think that's what the imagery is that Paul has in mind here. Oh, I'm really messing with you now. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. In fact, let's flip right back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again, real quick. Look at verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. So the question is, what happens to me when I die? Again, I think a relevant question. What does Paul say? What is the scenario? What is the course of events for me when I die? This is my best understanding of that eschatological scenario as taught in scriptures. And this is the controversial part, and this is why pastors are reluctant anymore to preach on this material, which is so sad, because we do live in some discouraging times. And the whole point of the passage, as you can see, is to be encouraged. So let me lay out for for you what I think is the scenario, and then again, I'll get on a plane and fly away, and you guys can all sort it out here. When you die, your body will become separated from your spirit. Your spirit will enter a heavenly kingdom and be present with Jesus. Your body will no longer function. You'll be dead. And so we're gonna bury your body. Your body will go into the earth and there it will decay and it will continue to to decay. But then at some point, and we have no idea when, the Lord will appear in the sky and we don't know the mechanics of this. We can't figure it out, but it will be like taking the globe and just somehow flattening it out because when he returns, it says that every eye will see, every ear will hear. So somehow, everybody on the earth will be able to see this and will be able to hear this. Then those who are dead will come out of the ground and their body will be reconstituted. It'll be a resurrection body. I think kind of like the body Jesus had after his resurrection. And notice that Jesus ate food after he was resurrected from the dead. Did you ever notice that? So he was not a ghost. He had a material body and he walked around and he did stuff. (laughs) I think we're gonna get a body like that. So the dead people will come up, they'll get that kind of body the Lord will be coming from heaven to the earth with those who have fallen asleep. So the spirits then of those dead people will be coming down and I think they will be joined together and I think they will become alive. They'll have resurrected bodies and they will live on a resurrected earth, a new creation. 
What about those people who are already alive? Well, we just read a little bit of the background from 1 Corinthians. In an instant, they'll be changed. Their mortal bodies will put on immortality. It will be, I believe, this is a mind lower, just as physical. It'll still be a real physical body. We're not going up into heaven to float around on clouds for eternity. This is not the scripture's picture of our eternal destiny. The scripture's picture of our eternal destiny is on the earth, a real, physical, new creation, a new garden city. That was the original creation, right, a garden? You read the book of Revelation, it's now a garden, but it's a garden city. And it will be mind-blowing, so mind-blowing that when John the Revelator wrote about it with this apocalyptic language, we can't even really get our heads all around that. We just know it's gonna be absolutely stupendous for eternity. You don't even need to have a bucket list. You have this idea of a bucket list, things I wanna do before I die, fine, that's fine. But you don't need that because you're gonna have an eternity to do all your bucket list things as long as they're holy, right? Oh man, what a vision. So, what I'm saying is I think that there will be a rapture. We'll be raptured up, caught up. We will meet the Lord in the air, and then I think we're returning to the earth. That, I think, is a vision for the future that can give you hopefulness. It's not nuclear bombs and people dying and the zombie apocalypse and all this kind of stuff. What is all that? That doesn't come out of scripture. Now I will say, I'm gonna say that later. Notice that we will be with the Lord forever. End of verse 17, we will always be with the Lord. That's heaven. That's your eternal destiny. That's the most important thing you need to think about for your future. Always being with the Lord. You can think I'm wrong about everything I've said, that's fine. At least believe that. Because that, I think, is the picture. And the most important thing is not so much the sequence of events, but the outcome. The dead and the living end up together. I think some of the Thessalonians were worried about that. The dead and the living end up together. And two, all believers will be with the Lord forever. And three, our final destiny is not death, but eternal life in the new creation. So, that is a hopeful future. That's a future that I can get behind for two reasons. One is I like it better than the other thing. (laughs) That's very subjective and it doesn't really mean that much. The main thing is that I think it's what the Bible teaches. I think it's what the Bible teaches. And it all leads, this hopeful future leads to a hopeful present. And there's the surprise. He talks about the future but then he brings it back to the present in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Our teaching about the end times should not be frightening, it should not be uh, discouraging, it should be encouraging. So encourage one another with these words. This should be our current reality, even if everything seems to be falling apart. Lots of things in our world do seem to be falling apart. There's a lot going on these days to be discouraged about, I understand that but the Lord is coming to the earth and he will set everything right. He's gonna fix everything. It's remarkable if you think about it. Early in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, who can make straight what has been made crooked? And the implied answer is nobody can. It's a very discouraging line. 
Who can fix what's been broken? Later in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter seven, verse 13, it says, the Lord made it broken. And then there's a little glimmer of hopefulness there. Oh, maybe the one who broke it, maybe he's got the ability to fix it. I think that's a little bit of the, of the hopefulness that comes through of the very strange book of Ecclesiastes. And that's the hopefulness we can have. If the world is broken, guess what? It was broken by the Lord. And why did he break it? Because of rebellion. But he also is the one who is able to fix it. He created everything. We rebelled. He broke the world. He made it painful for women in childbirth. He made it so that if a man wanted to make bread, he had to sweat. As J.D. pointed out very well last week, I loved it, Work was not the curse. Perspiration was the curse. Work would be hard now. But then eventually the Lord is going to fix the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through his ascension, his reign, and then eventually through his return in triumph. The world will then be fixed and will always be together. Samwise Gamgee asked Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, is everything sad going to come untrue? In Jesus, yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Let me give you some final thoughts here. Uh, This passage, and especially this sermon, are not meant to answer every question you might have about the end times. And humility and openness are a must, especially on the part of the guy who's preaching. We've got to say with an open hand, I think this is where this is going. This is how I lean. I've got some things here I believe, but I could be wrong. And show me from a text, You show me from a text, I'll come right over to your side and I'll believe you. That's what I call and consider a high view of scripture. Second thing, this passage is meant to enhance Christian living in the present. You may be tempted to fill up your soul, the parts of your soul, your heart, your life that are empty. You might be tempted to fill them up with things that are destructive, but those things will destroy you. And the wreckage is all around us when we try to go outside of what God offers in the spirit, when we go outside of that to get filled up, that's called idolatry and that's when we just destroy things. The third thing, we should grieve in a mature and dignified way at funerals. Be sad over the loss, but don't be without hope. Go ahead and embrace the grieving. Don't deny the death. Don't deny the grieving. So we don't, We don't need to deny this by then doing silly things. And this is a trend that I'm disappointed in sometimes at funerals. Oh, I know. We're happy because we're Christians and we don't really want to grieve. We don't really want to admit that we're sad and so we'll do some kind of silly things. We don't need that stuff. I think think there's a seriousness to grief that Paul recognizes. But again, underlined and girded by a hopefulness. A hopefulness in what? I'm gonna see my loved one again. That is an amazing thing to think about. And the fourth thing I would say, as JD pointed out last week, don't sit around looking up at the sky. Get on about your business. Do your work. Love the Lord through obedience. Love one another. Aspire to live quietly, minding your own business and serving expectantly, waiting for our blessed hope. Amen? By the way, this runs right the way through the 
whole book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. Look over, just follow with me, just for a second. Verse 10, chapter one, verse 10. And wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Over to chapter two, verse 19. What, for, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Chapter three, verse 13. Uh, talking about what the Lord is doing, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So the saints are all coming. Chapter four, verse 15, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Chapter five, verse 23, and maybe this is a good benediction. As we are going to prepare for the table, as we go to remember that Jesus died, his body was broken, his blood was spilled, And so as an act of remembrance, as an act of participating in that, we eat of the bread, which is his body. We drink of the cup, which is his blood. By the way, Paul told the Corinthians, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That little phrase captures when we live. We look back to grace, we look ahead to glory. And this act of the table reenacts that every time. We look back on the cross, we look ahead to the return, and we live in that space between. And we're reminding ourselves of that, we're saying it over and over again. So, let this be at least a benediction for my message, and then we'll go to the table. 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.